I do want to thank you for inviting me here. It's a thrill uh, to be here. Um, Chris has been telling me some of the things that uh, you folks have been doing. It's really exciting just to kind of see you coming together in this sitting and wanting to work together, um, particularly on, on, on an issue that's as difficult um, as this. I do need to um, say that I haven't been to Phoenix too much. Um, this is maybe my second time here. And I have to say, after being here, I was just came here last night, I don't understand why Phoenix has this reputation of being so hot. I mean, it's been gorgeous here. I'm going to go back and tell everyone in Southern California, oh, like, you know, Phoenix, the weather is amazing. So... <laughs> Actually, that's, that is true. You know, there's a big exodus out of California, so you may be getting some more people for that. But, uh, but yes, thank you again for um, inviting me here. It is a, a thrill to be here. Um, it is, I think we understand it is a difficult uh, topic to talk about. And I would probably add, I think you might agree, particularly in today's climate, where it just seems like the, the way of talking about things is to be polarized um, in different sides. That makes it even harder you know, in that. So I appreciate the fact that you really do want to uh, come together and, and discuss this and are really looking for ways uh, for how to uh, discuss this. I also wanted to um, thank you for being the ones who are in the trenches on this issue. Um, since I'm a biblical scholar, in a lot of ways, my job is a lot easier. I go to the library, I read books, I write, I come out every once in a while, um, and then I go back to the library, okay? Uh, you guys are the ones who are out there, you know, really working with people, hashing it out in relationship, dealing with the tough issues. I just come and speak and leave. Um, so thank you for, for doing the hard work, and it's, um, as I said, it's, it's great to be here, and also, I also learn from you as I begin to talk about with uh, people, as I said, people who are in the trenches and really working things out, and it uh, really enriches me, too, because I begin to see things that, that I hadn't seen before and things that I had missed. So, um, yeah, in talking about uh, this topic here, I do kind of start with, let me see, uh, this idea about um, how do we even approach the topic? Um, how do we think about it? And part of my personal story is I was telling Chris a little bit as we're coming here in terms of, you know, I kind of came about this, a lot of ways, this topic by accident. I had been, you know, studying in different ways or I had heard the traditional arguments and actually I was just working on my dissertation. It was not on this issue. Uh, it was just generally on uh, the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, and I came across all this information about uh, the head-body metaphor, and as I looked at that, I began to think like, oh, well, this doesn't really seem to fit, <laughs> you know, like either of them. And so it was actually kind of by accident. But one of the things, and so that's kind of been in some ways my MO in, in approaching this topic and, and other uh, topics, because maybe even throughout my experience just in, uh, life in graduate school, too. Sometimes I'm kind of amazed at how someone will tell me something and I just see something differently. You know, or maybe it's already, it's always been there, but I never really noticed it. Uh, when I was in graduate school, um, I had a professor, we disagreed on a lot, okay, and big disagreements um, on things. And then, but there's something she kept talking about, like, you know, Jesus' message to the poor, Jesus' message to the poor. And I remember thinking, like, well, of course, if you would have asked me that on a test, I would say, yes, you know, I see it. But there was something, this, just like one day something just clicked. And I suddenly realized, like, I read scripture through my own individual lens. I see scripture in terms of my individual piety. Um, and, uh, and all these things that I saw, I, I, could answer, I could answer on a test, but suddenly I saw it, you know what I mean? And I really began to see it's how it's integral to the uh, kingdom message. And I had just sort of had different moments like that in my life where it just, you know, I just kind of see differently, you know, in that. Um, and so I, I guess maybe for me, uh, the asking the gender question has been kind of one of those moments. And uh, I'll say, you know, my MO has been a lot of bit questioning a lot. I have to say I'm probably better at deconstructing than reconstructing. So I'll apologize for that right away in that. Um, but one of the things I've been looking at is I, I look both at the text, but also I've been really interested in terms of how we approach the issue um, because I think that becomes part of it. So uh, there was a book I came across um, very early on. I really liked the idea that she has a bomb on her uh, on, the, on the cover here. Uh, it's a book by a, a linguist uh, named Deborah Tan, and she teaches at Georgetown, called The Argument Culture. And what she does is she talks about how our culture is permeated by what she calls a pervasive, warlike atmosphere that makes us approach public dialogue and just about anything else we need to accomplish as if it were a fight. 
And she acknowledges that this approach is useful in some contexts, but it may have become exaggerated to the point where it gets in the way of solving problems rather than aiding. Like, it's, it's always the way we talk about it, okay? But it's not always necessary. And one thing that's interesting is that she wrote this in 1998. And I wonder what she would say today, you know what I mean, if she was saying that then. Um, and so, she says that there are assumptions behind it. The assumption is that opposition is the most desirable option and that tools such as cooperation and agreement are overlooked and undervalued, as well as other means like exploring, expanding, discussing, investigating, exchanging ideas um, in that. So, and then I would say, so if that is the case, I, I don't think that... Um, where there are occasions for debate, I also think that we may not be able to discover the entire truth in which the only option is to choose from two positions, um, you know, in that. Um, Tannen talks about, she says, opposition does not lead to the whole truth when we only ask what's wrong with this, and never what can we use from this in building a new theory, a new understanding. In other words, if we just limit it to an either-or choice, we don't have much room for improving either one in that. And so she talks about, she says that the problem, the way that you pose a problem can even obscure the solution before you even begin your search, if you approach it you know, in that way. If you're only critiquing, it doesn't allow for a different kind of answer you know, in that regard. So I sort of begin from there, and that is I do appreciate the value of the complementarian egalitarian debate. I do think there has been good fruit from it, just challenge each side um, you know, in that. But I also wonder if there isn't room for another approach in this, that um, uh, there may be more that we can uh, discover. So that's why I've been looking at that. Is there a way that we can expand it? Can we redesign it? Are there different frameworks? You know? Are there different lenses through which we can uh, look at things? And I'll kind of explain just some of the hesitations I have about the current framework in terms of how I feel that it is limiting. Not necessarily bad, okay, or wrong, but limiting, um, you know, in that regard. Because just to kind of give you an example, the types of questions that we ask will determine the type of answers we get. And I think this becomes important to us when we're thinking about, ultimately we're talking about our spiritual life in Christ, right? Uh, our new life in Christ, individually and corporately. So, for example, if someone is a new Christian and they come up to you and they say, well, tell me how to be a Christian. Can I drink? Can I smoke? Can I see this movie? How many times should I go to church? How often should I pray? I would guess that your answer would be something like, you know, those are good questions, but before you get on those questions, let me talk to you about what the Christian life is like. Okay, let's think about what it means to have new life in Christ. Let's talk about what it means to have the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about what it means to walk in the Spirit. And then we can talk about some of those things. Because you would probably be concerned that if they think about the Christian life only as adherence to an external standard, that will shape their faith in a certain way. And shaping your faith in that certain way are the things that may lead to things like legalism or lack of understanding of the internal life uh, and, and things like that. And so I probably think that you know, if that's the way it is with the Christian life, um, should we think about that in terms of the way that we approach our life together as male and female you know, in that regard too? Is it simply this matter of you know, what can women do, what can women not do, in that that shapes how we begin to think about our relationships with one another. In other words, if we think that the, if we have, if we think that we have to choose between the answers A or B, it doesn't leave much room for an answer like C, or five, or blue, even, in this regard. So kind of maybe engage in uh, imagination in this. Um, just a little bit to kind of reinforce this too. Paul in Romans 5, let me see, do I have this one up here? Okay. Uh, in Romans 5 says, For just as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. But the law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might exercise dominion through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this is a great passage about grace, right? You know, the matter, it's like no matter how much sin, there's always more grace. 
you know, grace abounds even the more, the more sin, the more sin, the more grace you're going to have, which is great, which is great news for us, right? But if you're thinking about it in a certain lines, you also may come up to another conclusion, right? If you want, if this is the way it works, okay, the more sin you have, the more grace you get because God's grace is better. If you want to get a lot of grace, then what do you need to do? You need to sin a lot, right? Um, which is very, very interesting when I mentioned that to my undergraduates. Um, and so, so Paul realizes that, that this is kind of a problem that you might have, but yet that's a theological truth. So what he does is, so he, asks, he anticipates, he says, well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay? And so he understands this. And Paul's answer, okay, because it's a real problem, okay? Well, Paul's answer is that, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, what Paul says is, okay, I understand this is the question you want to ask. You're looking at it kind of mathematically. Okay, more grace leads to more sin. I mean, more sin leads to more grace. I want more grace. I'll get more sin. Uh, true. But Paul says, actually, the point is, is that in Christ, you're a new person. You're, there's new life. And so really, that question doesn't really apply. Okay, and so what he does is he, he takes a discussion another way that's framed in the idea of new life. And so that's why we begin to, that's what I mean in terms of thinking about the questions that we ask and how our questions frame our answers, and is there another way of looking at it? Because really when you think about it, our questions tend to be very practical. What can women do? Okay? Now, certainly it's an urgent question, and I realize, as I said, since you folks are in the trenches, you are the ones who really have to deal with the ramifications of that. I said, I just kind of go home and go to my office and read more books. Um, <laughs> But if you really think about how it frames our, our questions, you know, we, we, they're very doing-oriented. Who makes the final decision? Who has authority? What can women do? Can women preach? Can women be elders? You know, in this regard, so it gives the impression that um, the life of men and women in the body is about who does what, okay? For complementarians, there are limitations. Women can do this, but they can't do that. For egalitarians, women can do everything in this sense, okay? But do we really want to think about our relationships as simply this matter of doing in this regard? How does that limit us? So that's kind of what I want to a question in that regard. Is there a larger context within which we can understand these questions? And, of course, I know that these are very real questions that we have to ask. But my question is, if we start from them, does it kind of get us off in a certain track? Okay? that leads us in a certain direction, and then we don't come back to these other questions about uh, larger questions about our, our life in Christ. So, uh, briefly, our current state, as you, I think we're all kind of familiar with, is that uh, it's d the debate is sort of centered around this idea of complementarian and egalitarian, as I think you all well know about that. So, the idea of complementarianism is um, equality and beneficial differences between men and women, uh, leading to a particular leadership role for men in the church and the home. Um, I'm sorry, taking this from, from a well-known complementarian book here. The Bible teaches that men and women fulfill different roles in relationship to each other, and that these roles include a unique leadership for men based upon not temporary cultural norms but permanent facts of creation. Uh, the other position is biblical equality, which says that the appropriate outworking of equality is for men and women to have equal opportunity for ministry in the church and shared authority with mutual submission in marriage. Okay? And the idea that uh, nothing, office, opportunities can be denied to women on the grounds of gender alone. So there, may be, there are actually, I think, a, quite a bit of variations within the positions. I think there's a bit of a spectrum in complementarianism, but I think there's also variation with egalitarianism as well you know, in this. But these are, I think, kind of the basics idea. And so it generally comes down to you know, which side are you on? Uh, do you identify with this unique leadership function for men, or, do you, uh, or is it equality based on equal opportunity and shared decision-making? But then, as I'm saying, I think that um, by setting up the discussion in this way, we're going to get certain answers, which then frame how we consider what gender is all about. Um, what happened is when I began to look at some other aspects of the text, it, it just seemed to me that this was a little bit limited. And there might be something more, and what I felt was even just more majestic um, than what can women do, and even do people have equality and equal rights. So I began to ask the question of um, what are we overlooking, you know, in this? 
Uh, just to let you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just taking one portion from the book. Uh, what I tried to do in the beginning of the book, because I really enjoy studying culture, and I tried to look at how did we get to this framework? You know, why are these things so important to us? Some of them, I think, are kind of timeless issues of power uh, and things like that. But even it's like, why are these issues of authority, leadership, equality so important to us? And so what I tried to do is I, I just looked through different time periods in, in American evangelical history to see how did we come to this. And one of the things I thought was very interesting, because it seemed to me that, that often what we did is we looked at the culture, or just you know subconscious, because we're always creatures of our culture, right? And often the ideas that were important in the particular culture at that particular time ended up being reflected in evangelicalism in terms of how gender was defined. And so what I did to try to do, so I'll, I, I won't have time to go over that, but um, that was what I tried to do to try to maybe explain how did we end up you know, in this position? Why are these important? And it's not that if we, if, it's not that if there's a semblance with culture that it's necessarily wrong, okay, because I think that God works through different means and we are people who live in a particular culture, but those are one of the things that made me think about, is it limited? You know, is there something more, you know, in, in this regard? If we just look so much like our culture, um, what might be, what might we be missing in this? So, when we're thinking about a kingdom mindset, um, how God does things in the kingdom, Well, one of the things is that when God does things, they are often very mystifying. Uh, they are incomprehensible. So we have our passage here in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 25. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, um, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In other words, it's a mystery, it's a paradox, it is incomprehensible to the world. And the cross is this primary symbol of the way God works. Now, we normally think about the cross in terms of atonement, the theological significance of the cross, okay? Uh, Jesus dies as a perfect sacrifice for sin because the holy God, you know what I mean, does you know, sort of require, there's, there's the need for atonement, appeasement of God's wrath because God is holy, and he uh, sacrifices his own son in order to save us. And that is, you know, the sort of theological significance of the cross. Um, and we kind of talk about that. Or if, you know, you watch the Passion of the Christ, uh, it really uh, emphasizes the idea of the suffering that Jesus went through, okay, on our behalf. Um, which is also another great theme. Paul talks about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. But there's also another dimension to the cross here, and that is the cultural dimension, the idea about the cross being foolishness and weakness, uh, because it speaks to the way that God works in a way that he confounds human expectation. Um, this is a scene from a movie called Spartacus. I don't know if everyone watched it. It's like an old movie. It has... Um, not Michael Douglas, Kirk Douglas, um, you know, in this. I think it's like from the 50s or something, but... Oh, so Spartacus it was a slave from the first century B.C., led a slave revolt against Rome. Uh, gathered, I think, maybe 70,000 slaves. There's a huge slave revolt. Um, and Rome had a very difficult time uh, putting it down because it was so big. So what Rome needs to do, okay, as a result of the slave revolt, is they don't want to have more revolts. So they need to kind of set an example. They, they need to show that, you know, you really don't want to mess with Rome. Um, it's foolish to mess with them. We are so powerful. We are going to destroy you. So what they do, because the idea of crucifixion is crucifixion is a very shameful death. Okay? It is generally served for criminals, slaves, and rebels against the empire in this regard. And as you can also see, it is a very public death. So what Rome does um, in the century before Christ was born to show, the, to kind of dissuade people to think that they can rebel against Rome they crucify uh, the slaves from the slave revolt along the Appian Way, the main Roman road. In other words, so it's a very visual, okay, uh, discouragement for people. If you really think that you can, okay, if you think you can defeat Rome, you're going to walk along this road and see person after person after person who failed, and very publicly. And so the cross is a symbol of human weakness, okay, human foolishness in the face of something as powerful as Rome. And so when Jesus is crucified, you know, and, and Paul talks about this, it's not just this idea of atonement, okay? It's this idea that 
um, someone who is seen publicly by the whole world as, in a sense, a symbol of foolishness and weakness and powerlessness against Rome is going to be the Savior. Okay? But that's how God works. Because what Paul says is actually the cross is power okay, and wisdom. But you have to understand how God works. So that's why I sort of said this is kind of the way, the gospel way. You can't, what Paul says later in 1 Corinthians is you can't understand it unless you have the Holy Spirit. Okay? So it's something that is mystifying. So that's when I began to think, well, perhaps as we're thinking about the relationships between men and women, maybe there is something else that follows this pattern. Maybe it's not just because maybe it's not the sort of simple thing that men are in charge or everyone is equal. Maybe there's something about this mystery of the gospel of God taking people who are so different, okay, and bringing them together, you know, in, in this regard. So maybe that's a perspective we want to think about. So I began to think about Categories like love, unity, holiness. The idea of the gospel as something paradoxical uh, that reverses the traditional norms and expectations. So maybe rather than simply asking who's in charge, okay, maybe we need to be asking things like how does love and unity between husbands and wives, the church, how does gender relate to the gospel? You know, in this, how does gender relate to the purposes of this sort of upside down gospel, uh, this paradoxical uh, gospel? How does the gospel relate to things like Paul says in Second Corinthians twelve nine that God works in um, power through weakness? When I am weak, then I am strong. So again, it's not that the traditional um, issues I think are absent or irrelevant, but I think that I think our perspectives may shift when we think about them in this this framework. Okay, so. So here's what I've kind of pointed out. Because I also say, like, you know, my goal is not necessarily, I'm not really necessarily trying to say someone should be complementarian or someone should be egalitarian. A lot of what I say is a part of my goal is I'd like to make complementarians better complementarians, and I'd like to make egalitarians better egalitarians, and I would like us to begin thinking about, you know what I mean, different ways of looking at uh, the issue. So we think about uh, thinking differently, you know, in, in this regard. As I said, I think there is both potential and limitations in the way that we are currently looking at it. So I'll begin with our complementarians. What is a servant leader? Okay. For complementarians in particular, it's the idea of do men have this particular authority, um, leadership? It revolves around these questions like who makes the final decisions? Can women be in positions of leadership? Can women preach? Things like that. And I know that um, authority is a pretty prickly concept. Okay particularly because it, it comes loaded with all these ideas of power and dominance uh, with that. So you have things like complementarians have, yeah, they've been trying to modify their position. Um, less, they speak less of hierarchy, a little bit more of complementarity, complementarian roles. And one of the ideas that has emerged in particular is this idea of servant leadership. Okay? Now, servant leadership is not unique to complementarians, but it is a big part of, okay? As I see it, a big part of the complementarian position. So, but I, what I want to do is kind of take another look at this concept of servant leadership in this. So, first of all, when I hear the term uh, servant leadership, or when the, we have generally heard it talked about, is this idea that leadership and authority are the predominant ideas, and servanthood is the way leadership is carried out. In other words, uh, uh, servant is the adjective, okay? It's a modifier uh, to leadership. So it's done in the manner of a servant. Um, as one person had mentioned, he said, uh, what it is is that leaders should use authority with a servant heart, okay? And so it's a modifier. I would suggest, though, that we need to be even stronger in the way that we think about this idea, which I think applies to both complementarians and egalitarians. So here is our passage, trigger happy there, uh, in Matthew. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. So, first of all, what I'd like to point out in terms of leaders as servant is that Jesus does not say lead like a servant. He says become a servant. Okay. And I think that there is a big difference. Um, the point is that 
Well, if you were to think about a Greco-Roman hierarchical ladder, okay, because they're very into status. The hierarchy, the ladder, the status is really important. The leaders are at the top of the status ladder. The servants are at the bottom. So when you say servant leader, okay, when Jesus says, actually he doesn't say servant, he says that, you know, the, the leaders will be servants. He's saying you kind of have to be both. In other words, it's a paradox because you can't be both. You can't be on the top and at the bottom of the ladder at the same time. And that's, again, it's like the mystery, okay? The cross is uh, power and weakness. It's foolishness and wisdom in that regard. So it's not a modifier. It's a paradox, you know, in this regard. So what we have to do is think about more of this idea of the paradox and probably in that day, well, what does it mean to serve? Even what does it mean to lead in a, a sacrificial manner? What Paul does is then if there is the idea of servant and leader is this idea that it exists as this paradox on the hierarchy, well, let's think about how does Paul describe himself um, as a leader in this regard. Well, he does a couple things. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about there is a debate in Corinth over the leaders, okay? People are saying, you may remember this, they talk about, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and Paul doesn't like that, okay? The reason they're doing that is because if leaders have the high status, they want to, if you're lower status, you get status if you attach yourself to the high status person. So that's why they're saying they're kind of competing to be attached to these leaders who have this high status. That's why they're doing it. So what Paul wants to do is he doesn't want them to attach themselves to these leaders of high status. So what he does is he begins to talk about, well, actually, the leaders are actually low status in, in this regard. So he says things like, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Among other things, he says the focus isn't on us as leaders. The focus is upon God, right? Okay? Um, their relationship uh, with God because they're the ones who they, um, God is the one that they serve. But even more to this, too. In the uh, passage 4.1, the, the word that Paul uses for servant refers to generally someone who is an assistant to someone else in an official position. Uh, what this person does is they administer the affairs of someone else. Okay? The word that he uses for steward here refers to the chief household slave, who was the head of the house of the estate manager, responsible for overseeing the house, but you have to do it within the guidelines set by the master because a master is in charge. So in other words, among other things, the point is that their authority is not their own. Okay? And they, have to, they can't do whatever they want. They have to do what the master wants because they are going to have to give an account to the master when the master comes back you know, in this regard. So just a couple of pictures I thought. This, I have this mansion here. It's not my house. Um, of course, they don't pay me that quite that, quite that well at Biola in this. Uh, this is it's Tom Brady's house, or at least it was. I don't know if it still is. So anyway, so you have Tom Brady's mansion here. I guess it's got this moat and everything, you know, around it. Um, and the point is just that, like, if you're the estate manager of Tom Brady's house, okay, you better do what Tom Brady wants, right? Or you have to give an account when he comes home. In this regard, that that what Paul that's how Paul considers himself. He's I'm really only the person who has to make sure I carry out what the master wants in this regard. Or if you're a fan of Downton Abbey. Okay, I like to think of this, you are not Lord, the leader is not Lord Grantham, uh, more Carson the head butler um, in that regard, okay? Uh, knowing what the Lord, what the master wants and carrying it out, and you better do a good job because the master is coming back, you know, in that regard. So if you were to think about this idea of, idea that uh, leaders are those who have high status, or particular privileges, you see that this gets turned upside down in terms of Paul's uh, context in here. There are other things that Paul does throughout his letters where he kind of uh, turns upside down these ideas. Um, 1 Corinthians uh, 3, 6 to 8, I planted, Apollos waters, God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul actually uses an image of them as field workers in this regard, a very humbling image for that time. Or um, you may, some of these you may remember 
1 Corinthians 4, 9 to 13, he calls the apostles as those who are a spectacle to the world, the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. In 1 Corinthians 4, 10 to 11, uh, they are without honor, hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless, reviled. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 to 17, they are fools and weak in the eyes of the world. Over and over, this is the way that Paul describes the apostles. They are shameful in the eyes of the world. So, in other words, they are the opposite of what the world might esteem in terms of status, privilege, and other worldly considerations. But the point is that God works through that, okay? Because God is the one who gives the growth in this regard. Um, They become examples of God working through humility and weakness in this. So I'd like to go a little further in this. Because you'll notice that in the passage, Paul doesn't just say that leaders are servants. He says leaders as slaves, which I would think would be very interesting. Why do we say servants and not slaves? And I think, well, maybe because servants is a little bit more palatable. You know what I mean? Because slaves has just like a a stronger connotation, right? You know, in in this regard, um, and in the ancient context, the idea of slavery is, again, much, much stronger than the idea of being servant. What do you think about slavery? Powerlessness. Lack of freedom. The slave is in particular at the bottom of the social ladder. Their identity is tied up with the owner in, in that regard. As, so as Paul's talking about the leaders in terms of doing this. And by the way, um, this is how Paul describes Christ, right? In this regard, that was kind of the point of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Although he was in the form of God, did not equate equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, slave, actually in the Greek, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you were to think about someone who might have the highest status, privileges, you cannot get higher than God, right? And then what Paul says is, yes, Jesus becomes servant, slave, and dies that humiliating death on a cross, okay? And God saves us through that, okay? And that becomes the point because Jesus is sort of the epitome of foolishness weakens the eyes of the world because God raises Jesus from the dead. God is able to save us in that. So Jesus becomes a sort of prime example of, of the way that uh, God works. So in other words, if we're thinking about this, what does it mean to be a leader for any of us. Well, I think according to Paul, it talks about, well, our identity is not in the position, but only in our relationship with God. We serve the master. Um, It is sacrificial. So what's being sacrificial? Well, in the ancient context, it means sacrifice in terms of everything that counted in terms of your identity in that culture. Status and honor and wealth were everything in that regard, and that becomes sacrifice. Um, All these critical markers of identity are what Paul says, you know, you give them up. These are given up that you can find your identity in Christ. You might say that that person becomes a nobody in that culture. They lose the right of self-determination and self-assertion. And we see that Paul thought of himself in that way too. Philippians 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul says, all these earthly markers of identity that I had, they mean nothing to me so that I can gain Christ because he imitates Christ, and God works through that. So for this, then in terms of servant leadership, I would say, regarding complementarians, if there is a unique leadership role given to men in the, New, in the New Testament, I think we do need to really examine the assumptions and the values behind this. Um, do our, does our understanding of leadership include this sort of paradoxical kind of social lowering and abasement, the idea of where identity uh, comes from? Does it reflect this idea of uh, the New Testament reversal? And I won't go through these in details, but you know, when you look through the Bible, you see them all over the place, right? 
um, God chooses Jacob rather than Esau. David is the Lord's anointed rather than um, the older brothers. Uh, the Lord has Gideon winnow his men from 32,000 to 300. Um, over and over again, you see this pattern. Uh, the widows might cost more than the large, uh, the large contributions of the rich. God does this because it gives this lesson, it sets a framework of human inadequacy and God's sovereignty. It sets a framework of this is the way that, that God works. So it's not simply this matter of someone necessarily has these talents, potential they do this. It really becomes someone who becomes this example of the futility of human ways and how God works you know, in this. So I think what we have to do is think about when servant only modifies leadership, do we really, does it really fundamentally challenge the nature of leadership okay, that we see um, in the world and that is redefined in, in the scriptures? So I would say that for all of us, particularly the complementarians, because um, as I said, it becomes a, a core part of the complementarian idea, is maybe to ask whether our, our structures give glory to God or to the people occupying the positions. You know I mean, is that, you know, is that what we see? Is that, does that become evident in that? Because as Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gives the growth. So we really think about what comes out in this. So, um, yeah, so let me, now that I've talked about the common table, we'll move on to the egalitarians. And so I know that I'm talking a lot, we think about doing questions, but then I thought, um, if you can hang in, <laughs> so I'm talking a lot, it might be better just to kind of finish and then take questions all at once, just in case we get um, sidetracked, you know, in that. So let's talk about um, egalitarianism and the concept of equality and inclusion. Here, I, I, I'd like to think a little bit about this idea of equality and the focus. And again, a, a lot of my talk is, is on how we focus on things, okay? I'm not saying that equality isn't a worthy goal, nor is servant leadership. I'm not saying it may not be part of the implications of kingdom living, but I, I question what might happen if we focus on this, okay? And I'd like to have a different focus whether or not this is the point of, of scripture. What scholars such as John Eliot have disturbed is that the New Testament does not center on equality as much as it does a related but significantly different concept, inclusion. Okay. Because inclusion has different ramifications in this, and I think these ramifications are important. Um, he talks about this idea that this whole idea that people are created equal, endowed with certain inalienable rights, comes from the Enlightenment, and would have been thoroughly alien to the ancient world. In fact, their idea was that people were by nature created unequal, okay? And the whole point was everyone is unequal, and these, um, it comes with a certain social status that's apportioned by nature or God, and this is permanent and unalterable. And also this idea is very important to the ancient concept of stability because the whole point is people are created differently. You have to know your role. If you don't stay in your role, you upset the social order in this regard. And it's, 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 you see this not just in society, but just in the way that they look at the world. Okay, so for example, if you look at nature, nature works in certain ways, or, or the universe, uh, the sun, move in, sun, moon, and stars, okay? There's a certain order, and so when that gets upset, then that's disastrous, okay? Right, so why is it, you know, so um, disturbing when the sun, when it's dark, okay, when Jesus is crucified? Well, among other things, because it's not supposed to be dark during the day. There's an order to the universe, and so when that order is upset and it's dark during the day, then... You know, it, the end is coming, you know, in, in this regard. So there is this idea that people are inherently born in a certain way. You have this status. You have to stay in this status, in this role, or you're going to upset the social order. And sort of keep that in mind when you're thinking about uh, Paul's instructions here. Now, of course, um, this idea that there was this lack of equality can show that, well, if this is a big thing in the New Testament, it can show the radical nature of the gospel message. That's certainly a way of looking at it. But I do think that Eliot and all these other scholars are right in saying that what Jesus is promoting is not so much, at least as a focus, equality, but this idea of inclusion. In other words, what he makes it possible for everyone to become members of this new covenant community. Okay? Everyone is included in this family of God. They become a surrogate family, okay? where you're included by, I guess we'll say, not natural blood ties, but the blood ties of Christ. In that. And think about when you look at the New Testament, how often you see the terms like brother and sister. Okay? It becomes the, the idea is the idea about the family of God and 
the bonds of the family as brotherly and sisterly love. As people like Elliot say that if we focus on this idea of a community equals, it may not only be incorrect in terms of what Jesus' intent, but it may obscure this original idea of the, the church as a household or family in this regard. Because what I think is that seeing the community as an inclusive one is significant because rather than focusing on individuals, it brings forth more the idea of the bonds in the community. Okay? Um, Galatians 3.28 is a, a famous passage in the gender debate. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is used a, a lot in terms of supporting the egalitarian position that there is now equality because if there is neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, that we shouldn't have these um, boundaries in terms of ministry in this. But I would point you to that what he says, he doesn't say um, literally that um, everyone is equal. He says that they are one. Okay? Again, a related but different concept with important different ramifications. Okay? There is a word for equality that he could have used, but he did not use here. Okay? So it's not like equality is, is absent in the New Testament. But we want to think about why the importance of this idea of oneness. So in terms of the reception of grace, um, all are included. And I think it brings out more this implications of this passage of now everyone being a member of this body, okay, as opposed to more the idea of rights. So, for example, if you were to take a look at Jew and Greek in this idea, in order to unify them, in order for them to be one, okay, you have to overcome a lot of fundamental barriers that divided the two. Okay, the Jew-Greek separation was considered one of the most basic divisions in the first century. There was a lot of animosity, a lot of hatred uh, between the two groups. But the point is that this, this animosity, this separation, is now transcended in Christ. In fact, what Paul says in Ephesians, he says, He himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay? In other words, Jesus has broken down these barriers that uh, separate people. He overcomes hostilities in the world so that they become one body. In other words, there are this new set of attitudes and reactions about the way that we approach one another, okay? It's not so much equality, if we think about it in terms of sameness or even fairness, as much as a profound love and acceptance of one another, okay, in, in the body. So again, maybe there is equality, but it would be, I would think, a sub-point, okay, beyond this more important point. If you were to think about the other pairs he has here, okay, uh, the male-female, slave-free, those separations are considered by one scholar the primary ways in which people were divided separated from each other in the structures of the present age they're bracketed together because they have been the source of the most bitter hostility and antagonisms okay in other words the point of this passage is paul takes these separations if you were to ask someone like what are some of the basic separations okay it's male female it's slave free what are these two groups that can't come together okay because nature wants to separate them okay this is part of the status thing there are stereotypes men are like this and women are like this and slave is like this and and free is like this and there is this separation between them and now paul says that these things have been transcended and even more than that uh, these people should be willing to love one another, maybe even die for one another in, in this regard, okay? So that's why I begin to talk about sort of the implications of this if we speak about oneness, okay, inclusion rather than equality. Now, may, let me make another uh, side point in this too because I, I know as soon as I, I, when I started thinking about inclusion, okay, because what happens is, you know, when you're a scholar, you, you, know, you spend a lot of time in the library and you're studying, you write, and then after a few years, you know what I mean, I, I discovered this term inclusion. I was really excited about it. So after a few years, I kind of emerged from the library, okay? Uh, the book gets published, and then suddenly I look around the world and I want, oh, everyone's talking about inclusion. <laughs> I realize that suddenly it's become like the word of the day in that. So it's a little bit, um, yeah, I didn't know what to do with that. Um, besides the fact that I was a little bit like, oh, wait, that's my term. People are using my term. Okay, 
But then as I began to think about this too, I thought, well, there's some problems because uh, I think that, you know, when I hear inclusion, I hear, I hear other people use it in a different way than I'm using it, right? Because it's a very political term, you know, right now. So I'd like to kind of qualify a little bit kind of what I mean by inclusion and maybe some of the different ramifications of it. When I think of, about inclusion today, I'm kind of roughly because I'm not... Um, Political is not really my area, but I think about inclusion as in like uh, this political term that this, I, this idea that, you know, whatever I am, female, Asian, whatever, I am included um, in the sense that I should have these rights, okay? And, and that you, the larger society, cannot deny me these rights because I must be included in them, okay? So there's this idea of, you know, the benefits that you get from being included. Here it's, it's going to be rights. Um, and I certainly can see, you know, sort of the reasoning, you know, behind that. We, we don't want to discriminate in this. But on the other hand, I also think that when I think about it in that way, it's kind of focused on me, you know, in this, okay? Now, good things in some ways, but it, it focuses on me, and we kind of think about, you maybe even see the problems that happens is when society is just focused on rights, okay? Well, I'll just give one example, because, well, ultimately, if it's just a matter of rights, the rights are going to clash with one another, Right? You know, where, where we live, our houses are kind of close together. Um, if someone's playing loud music all the time, they may say, well, I have a right to play loud music. I'm like, well, I have a right to have a quiet house, too. You know, I have a right. But so there's going to be, you know, these classes. So what do you do? And then what, usually what happens is, like, the law comes in and has to kind of decide, you know what I mean, or someone by force or whatever, by law has to decide who gets the rights in that regard because ultimately you're going to have these clashes. So what is... What does um, the New Testament do, I, I think, when I think about inclusion? Well, same thing. When I'm included, there are benefits. I have the benefits of salvation, okay? The, the benefits of salvation that were originally only to the Jew now are available to me as a Gentile. I do get these benefits. But the point isn't just that I have these benefits, okay? The point is that once I'm included and I'm a member of the body, I now have obligations to other members of the body, Okay? So in other words, the benefits don't just stop with me. It's not just like, yay, I get benefits. The point is that, wow, now I'm included in the body of Christ. I'm included in this organism where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, you know, if one member suffers, all suffer with it. If one member rejoices, all rejoice. The body is this organic unity where we're, you know, I mean, if something bad happens to you, I, I'm going to feel it, okay, and it should impact me. So we want to go a step further in that. Yeah, there are benefits of being included, but it also means then I turn around then and the benefits I've gotten from God are ones that I give to you. Grace and mercy, okay? Um, love and love. So I think that becomes a very important thing to when we think about what inclusion in the body of Christ means in that. So I think that's one thing that becomes uh, different. Let me also mention just really quick, if you want to look at this too, if you look at, as I said, the formulas here, I'm sorry, in, in Galatians 3, are, what Paul does is sort of use these sort of stereotypical phrases to kind of talk about how these uh, typical opposites now can become one. Okay, that's the point of using it. If you were to look at me, like Paul uses these phrases elsewhere, right? He uses them in 1 Corinthians, he uses them in Romans, he uses them in Colossians, the sort of like slave-free, male-female dot. If you go to these passages, and I'll, I'll give you some examples of them, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13, you'll notice that um, these passages about oneness, male-female, slave-free, are almost always accompanied with an exhortation to love one another. Okay? 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13 is accompanied by 1 Corinthians 13. Colossians 3, 11 to 15, Romans 12, 5 to 10, Ephesians 4, 2 to 6. So I, I would encourage you just to go ahead and take a look at some of those passages. We'll notice that in Colossians, he puts this all together. He talks about put on all these put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Okay, so just to kind of give you an idea of how Paul connects all of these. So, again, it doesn't mean that equality couldn't be a feature of the New Testament, but I think it's not going to be the primary emphasis. I think the ideas of oneness, inclusion, lead us in a certain direction, okay, that I think bring us closer to what Paul may want. If there is a certain type of equality, it is, should be understood within that context, okay, not as a primary uh, guiding emphasis. Okay, and by the way, um, to kind of add this to a little bit more, you may also notice that 
you know, rights are a great thing, okay? I'm all for um, people having their rights. But you may also notice that in the New Testament that Paul often talks about uh, this idea of even higher than that is giving up your rights, okay? If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again lest my brother stumble, okay? Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example of someone who had the rights and didn't use them. Okay, so again, we, there's, a further, there's a higher way. We don't want to stop, okay, at something that would be uh, less than that. So think about um, not, not simply equality, rights, but inclusion. The idea that the point is not, um, in some sense, not what we get, but the God who gives. The point is not that God is fair, but he is merciful in this regard, and that we are called to extend mercy to one another in this regard, as members of the body, okay? So, um, implications for this. Let me think about a few conclusions on this. One is that if we're thinking about how Paul thinks about the, this idea of the reversal and the status implications and things like that, ultimately, I think leadership in the New Testament empowers others for ministry in this. Um, Paul talks about, in Ephesians, he says, uh, God put apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in the body. Why does he put these people in the body? So we hear of our pastors, teachers. Um, uh, not just so they are always the ones preaching on Sunday morning, although I'm sure they do a good job, um, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Okay? In, in other words, what I see when Paul's thinking about that, the, the point is that, um, you know, Acts 2. Uh, the Holy Spirit has come. The Holy Spirit gives uh, gifts to people, okay? You know, in this, uh, the body of Christ is, you know, the body of Christ, people operating in their gifts. And what Paul seems to, for me to saying in, in Ephesians here is that, well, yeah, he gave, he gave these people, okay, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers, what? To equip the gifted saints for the work of ministry, okay? For building up the body of Christ. So I, I think sometimes in general, sometimes our churches, sometimes I look at some, I think just in general, but sometimes we kind of think about, you know, the leaders are the ones who are out there doing the work and doing that, as opposed to um, how much should it be equipping the gifted people in the congregation to do the work, you know, in that regard. So I said this is something that I think would apply to uh, both complementarians and egalitarians, because I think this kind of fits with this idea of Paul saying that, yeah, if he's this idea of the steward, what his job is to see that what he's been entrusted with, are, which are these spirit-filled people, to be entrusted that the body is built up because of the way that God has called these people. So I think that I consider that to be Paul thinking about that as his job in this regard. A second point. Uh, the idea of rights and positions do tend to have a bit of an individualistic focus. Okay, it does tend to focus a little bit on what I get or my position, uh, things like that. Um, but I do think we need a bit of a balance, that the New Testament affirms both the individual and the community. Now, it can go far the other way. It can go too far in terms of the corporate aspect, too. So I think we have to say there is a robust sense of the individual. Um, but we want to be careful that we aren't just kind of like focusing upon that. There is something about the community that's here. So Paul talks about, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit, for the common good, okay? So I would say things like, if you think about this, for complementarians, if we're thinking about this idea of kind of shepherding your gifted congregation in this way, one uh, concern sometimes I have is that, that the idea of male leadership can turn into, and I got this phrase from someone else, more of a male culture in this regard. And I think that there is a, a difference between the two, okay? If the men are shepherding, okay, versus a male culture. I think we have to, this is a more practical consideration, I, I think we have to be careful that our congregations um, become mostly male voices and male presence as, as part of that, that male culture. Um, when I read 1 Corinthians 12, I, I see this gifted church and everyone's kind of you know, contributing um, to that. As a practical means, I have to think about sometimes what, what happens in, uh, sometimes in, in complementarian churches is that if you think about it, that uh, the woman will hear from uh, men and women, okay? But the men hear only from the men 
you know, in this regard. So I would think that there needs to be room for the female voice, you know, within that, okay? And I think this would fit within this idea of, you know, male leadership, okay? You know, in this regard, I don't think that it, um, you know, has any, um, it contradicts that in any way in terms of how I see it uh, working in that. Um, for the egalitarians, uh, I would say really consider um, what do we mean by the common good? Uh, I think maybe in our culture we are beginning to see what happens when we have so much to focus on individual rights. Okay, as good as that is, once that really becomes a defining thing, we can kind of, I think we can kind of see what's kind of happening, um, some of the difficulties, tensions we have in our culture in that. So, yeah, rights are good, but uh, the common good, how do, we, how do we consider that? And so I, I think that really needs to be considered uh, seriously um, for the egalitarians. I think it would be good to just ask that question when if we're asking like what, you know, women in leadership and roles, what is leadership, you know, in that? Um, I think it's really easy. We come to the conclusion we, we, because we have an idea of what these terms mean, right? Because we've grown up with these terms. It's good once in a while just to take a step back and say, hey, wait a minute, do I need to rethink this? Is there something that I'm missing? It's so easy to have assumptions in terms of what it means in anything uh, that we have. But maybe we need to kind of stop and take a look at that one because I do think the New Testament really does bring a lot of challenges here. Okay. And then finally, um, I want to bring up this topic. Um, it's not related to the gender debate itself as much as um, what I understand what you folks are trying to do in here in terms of uh, being able to talk about this together. And I just want to say again, thank you so much. I just really appreciate what you are doing, just really wanting to come together and talk about it and say, hey, you know, it's fine if you have this position, if you have this position. We don't want people to ha feel like they have to stay quiet on this, but we do feel like it has to come out so we can talk about it. Uh, I think that's really important, to, you know, in this. Um, one passage that's really, I've been really thinking about a lot lately is Romans 14, you know, in this. And, and just to kind of give you an idea in terms of how Paul deals with um, certain types of conflict in the church. What's fascinating to me about Romans 14 is the kind of problem that's going on here. Now, this happens to be an ethnic conflict here. Now, what happens in, in Romans 14 is that apparently some of the Jewish believers are having a hard time giving up some of their traditions now that they are Christians. They have some questions about whether it's okay to eat certain foods. So there's a conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles in the congregation, okay, whether it's okay to eat these certain foods. Now, what happens is that Paul, on the one hand, um, gives a fairly straightforward answer. He actually does come down on, on one side. But his main problem is that he has a problem with the way that they are dealing with their conflict, okay? And I, I like this as an example because I think sometimes we get this idea that, oh, if you're going to come in together and talk about everything, well, then you're going to end up with some really mushy third way where you don't really accomplish anything and everyone kind of compromises their values and then it's all about like, you know, kumbaya and everyone happy together and you really don't deal with the substance, uh, you know, of the issue. But what I love about Romans 14 is Paul does say, this is a great combination of what I say, Paul says, yes, there is a right position. There is something objective, but within this, you really have to be careful how you treat one another. Okay, in other words, I don't, there's not a conflict between doctrine and loving one another. Because I think today we have the sense of, well, if I love one another, I can't say anything, okay? Because, you know, we're trying to be inclusive and tolerant. And Paul says, well, no, actually you can't, you can't do that, okay? Paul ultimately comes down on uh, the side of the Gentile Christians. He said, you know, food isn't really that important, you know what I mean? Really? Okay, so, you know, you guys who think that it's okay, you are the right people. But what he does, he, he pretty much sweeps that aside, and he said, now let me talk about the main point here, okay? Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. But you... Uh, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Okay? What Paul is noting here is that they have forgotten the command to love one another. Okay? And said, Paul still comes down and says, there is a truth here. Okay? We don't necessarily say every viewpoint is okay. You know, I mean, there is a, a side here. But what he's saying, because for Paul, I think he considered, it's not a salvation issue for Paul. If it were, he would, he would be feeling much stronger about this, okay? But what you see is that the two sides are 
I don't know if it's just say, going back to the Gospels, in a sense, maybe we say, in a sense, sort of like murdering each other in their hearts, you know, in that, okay? Look at the words that Paul talks about here, okay? They are despising, okay? Uh, they are showing contempt. Um, one of the words for contempt here is the same word that's used in the Gospels for the soldiers who showed contempt to Jesus, you know, in this. And the other thing that I kind of find interesting is Paul sort of, he, he kind of like each side, what Paul shows here is that each side will have its own temptation to sin here, okay? In some sense, he talks about kind of generalizing here, um, the more conservative side, okay, the ones who feel like you still have to hang on to these, um, uh, you know, these, these food rules, he talks about them condemning or judging them. Okay, in other words, condemning like you're, you're absolutely wrong, you know, in, in this regard. And, you know, in them, they may be making a, con a condemnation about their salvation, too. The ones who he might call the more progressive ones who say, no, it's okay to eat. In Jesus, we can't eat. He said they are the ones who, in a sense, show um, contempt or despise. They look down, okay, on the traditionalists, you know, in this regard. So I find that kind of fascinating how Paul says that there really is, I think for all of us, um, there is a temptation, okay, to sin in certain ways. And so I just, as I said, I, I think that's just really a fascinating passage as we think about this, that ultimately a lot of this is we want to know the answer to this issue. We want to know what women can do. We want to know how we should relate to one another. But we also have to be careful that as we talk about this, and you guys have uh, been talking about this, that we don't fall into other relational sins, okay? Or maybe say, I think about personal sanctification, and I think if you were to look just even at the broader contours of the discussion, sometimes if you think about how people talk about it, I do see certain things. There is sometimes the condemnation. Do you see a despising? Do you see a dismissing? Do you see a pride and moral superiority? Okay? In other words, I think for Paul, you can have the right cause, maybe even the right answer, but you can have the wrong method or the wrong way of going about doing something. And I think we can think about both of those. You don't sacrifice one or the other, but those are both things that are present. So, all right, so thank you for that. I'll do that, so thank you for that.